Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Welcome to another edition of the Insurgents Podcast. And I'm joined with my friend, John Nugent, and we are here to answer more questions, yet more questions from you all. So, are you ready to roll here, John? I am. Let's dig in. Okay. This first one is about the Sermon on the Mount. What is the role of the Sermon on the Mount in kingdom living? And uh, I think I'll start off answering that and have you sound off afterwards. A couple things in introduction. Number one, it was not a sermon. Unfortunately, that term has entered the bloodstream of the body of Christ, but if you want to know the origins of the sermon as we know it today, I would encourage you to pick up a book entitled Pagan Christianity by Frank Viola and George Barna, and there is an entire chapter on the sermon. It is not Christian. It did not come from Jesus Christ or the apostles. The sermon came straight from the pool of Greco-Roman oratory. Now, when I say that, without people reading the chapter, they immediately think, well, are you saying that Jesus didn't preach and that Paul didn't teach? No, preaching and teaching and prophetic ministry and the ministry of exhortation, etc., those things have very little to do with a sermon. And I'm not going to get into that rabbit trail, (laughs) but I just want to point that out. Secondly, the whole term Sermon on the Mount originated in the 5th century with a man named Augustine, or Augustine, however you wish to pronounce it. It really does not describe what it is. This message that Jesus gave, the Sermon on the Mount, quote-unquote, was given to his disciples. It was not directed to the masses, although the masses heard it as indicated at the end of the passage, but it was to his disciples that he was speaking when he said, you are salt, you are light. Those were words to the embryonic expression of the ecclesia, what would become the body of Christ, his own followers. Those words were not to the whole world. Maybe you could read uh, something along that line. Sure. Yeah, Matthew 5, 1 to 2 reads, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying... Taught them. Yeah, that's that's the key there. So I do not expect someone in the world, I'll say a government official, to turn the other cheek, for example, or to love their enemies. That, in fact, is something that I believe can only be done by divine life anyway. Yeah, I think this is... This is so true of the Sermon on the Mount, or I would say the letters of the churches, and even the instruction of the prophets in the Old Testament, that these are God's words for God's people. This is not generic instruction for being a religious person in the 21st century, or the 1st century, or any other century. These are specific instructions for the called out people of God, who have embraced the kingdom message. I, I think it's important that the Sermon on the Mount is set up with Matthew um, 4.17, which precedes the sermon, says, From this time Jesus began proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Mm. You know, it is framed as part of this proclamation of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And what 
What is the first cluster of kingdom teachings that is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew? Uh, it is what we have in Matthew 5 through 7. These are kingdom mandates. These are principles for the kingdom that God is inaugurating through Jesus in contrast to how the kingdoms of this world function. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah, it's, it's almost a charter for the kingdom of God, That's right. a kingdom manifesto. It is a description of what life in the kingdom looks like. Now, I want to say a few things about the passages, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I'm trying to stay away from the word sermon because it wasn't that. But these are observations that I think may be different for a lot of people. Uh, number one, if you read the words of Jesus in these chapters, you are going to fulfill one of the first things he says. You're going to experience one of the first things he says in the opening of that message. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And if you properly understand what he is saying and what he is asking, what he's demanding, in effect, you're going to be poor in spirit by the time you end that last chapter. Because it is humanly impossible for any human being, even if they are a believer, even if they are indwelt by the Spirit of God, it is humanly impossible to fulfill those three chapters, what Jesus says there. I want to break that up into two parts. One, Jesus himself, if I can put it this way, could not live the Christian life, quote-unquote. He couldn't live the kingdom life, and he admitted it. He said, without my Father, I can do nothing. And then he turned around and he says to his disciples, without me, you can do nothing. The point there is that Jesus of Nazareth, the pure, spotless Son of God, could not live the life of the kingdom without an indwelling Father. And that was the engine to his amazing life. He lived by the Father. And he said it over and over again, all throughout John. It's not me, it's the Father. The Son can do nothing, only what he sees the Father doing. I don't live by my own life. I live by the life of the Father. On and on and on. And then the passage moved when he was resurrected. The only begotten Son became the firstborn among many brethren. He breathed into his disciples. And what the Father was to Jesus Christ... Jesus Christ now became to his disciples. That applies to us today. What the Father was to Jesus, Jesus is to us who follow him. He is our indwelling Lord. And brother and sister, if you want to become frustrated, and if you want to live under a pile of guilt, go ahead and try to live the words of the Sermon on the Mount. Go ahead and try to love your enemies, to return good for evil, and to do all the other things that are mentioned there and you will fall flat in your face and you will be poor in spirit by the time you finish. That's number one. Only Jesus Christ can live that life. Only the Father could live that life. And I think, John, this is a major blunder that has plagued the body of Christ for many, many years and has led Christians to either A, live in constant guilt or begin cheating and bluffing. In other words, well, he didn't really mean that. What he meant was so-and-so, to dull the edge of what Jesus was really speaking about. Only Christ can do this, folks. Only the Spirit of a living God can live this way. Thank God he has given us his life. And this is why my search for so many years has been to answer the question, Christ lives in me. Paul was clear about that many times. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
It is not I, but Christ who lives in me. But the question that has burned in my heart and put me on a search in an odyssey is, how do I get Jesus Christ to live his life through me? Mm-hmm. So that it is him, not me. That is a question that has driven much of my ministry and much of what I have written about and much of what I've spoken about has been my various discoveries on how to answer that question. That's number one. Backing up what you said is also in chapter four, we have the record of Jesus' baptism. And uh, when he comes out of the water, I mean, the Spirit of God Amen. descends upon him. That's it. And then he goes right. into the wilderness. And then he begins preaching the kingdom, and then he lays out uh, the teaching in Matthew 5 through 7. Amen. And so the, the indwelling of the Spirit in the life of Jesus, the same Spirit that he yes. imparts Amen. to us is the context for this. So the fact that we can't live this life is not that we shouldn't take these teachings seriously. We were not intended to live this life on our own steam and on our own strength. Absolutely. But we were intended to live this life. <laughs> Yes. Which is why the end of the sermon has this this teaching about uh, a wise man builds his house on the rock. Like, yes. Absolutely. These teachings are the foundation of your life. That's right. You're meant to live this way, but not by your own strength. Yeah, and I think sometimes when we say we can't live it in our own strength, a person can say that and yet go about trying to live it in their own strength. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So I, I like to say, I cannot do anything that's in there. Only Jesus Christ can do it, but he can do it through me. And that's where the linchpin is, that the Spirit of God lived in Christ when he lived on this earth. It was the Father living in him by the Spirit. And now that same Spirit that lived in Christ now dwells in me, Christ in me as an indwelling life. And I would add to that that we weren't meant to live this sermon alone. Now, that was my second point. So that was the first point. We cannot do this. Only he can, but he can do it through us. So we are to take it seriously. It's not something we should look at and say, well, I can't do that. Let's move on to the next thing. But the second piece, I know we're singing the same tune here, John. This was not written to you as an individual disciple of Jesus. It wasn't written to any of the individual disciples of Jesus when he was speaking it. And it's not written to us as individuals. It is written to a corporate body of believers. It's written to a collective people. I don't mean all the Christians scattered around the world that you don't know. I mean a local body of believers. And brother, the Christian life cannot be lived. The kingdom life cannot be lived. The life of Christ cannot be lived as a solo individual trying to do it on your own. Even with the Spirit of God, it was meant to be lived in community. And if you read that, if you read that message in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 carefully and seriously, you will admit at the end of the day, I cannot do this myself, but in community, the community can actually live this life together. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's that's what it means to frame this as a, a teaching for the kingdom of the kingdom, about the kingdom. This is what life in the new order made possible by Jesus looks like. And that new order made possible by Jesus is inherently a social reality. It's not a, it's not a solitary spiritual pilgrimage. It is a dynamic unleashing of a new humanity, a new community into this world whose life together is consumed with God's reign and displays that reign as much as possible in its life together. So what do you see here? You see forgiveness. You see the loving of one's enemies. 
you see the impulse to defend oneself liquidated. As Americans, we're real strong on defending ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I would dare say that most of the pacifists I have met, and even pacifist leaders, many of them, will give a lot of high talk about the evils of war and the military and fighting on a national and international level. But when it comes to, say, the internet and somebody rubs them the wrong way, <laughs> quick to defend themselves. Yeah. And when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he's talking about in every level. Even when someone rips you to shreds on the internet or misrepresents you or lies about you or attacks you, are you going to defend yourself or are you going to turn the other cheek? He also talks about the judging of motives in this passage. Judge not, lest you be judged. And then he gives that little illustration. If you see a, a flaw in your brother's eye and he uses the illustration, it's hypocrisy to focus on the piece of sawdust in your brother or sister's eye when you have a telephone pole in your own. And he couches that discussion with the word judging. And John, I believe that what he is saying there is that when people judge others, they in effect are typically judging their motivations. John, you did such and such because this is in your heart. You have pride. Or Mind reading. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have pride or you're trying to get glory or you're trying to do such and such. And what's really happening there is when one person judges another, they are seeing that particular sin in their brother or sister's heart because that's what's in their own heart. They're projecting what's in themselves onto the other person. So consequently, that piece of sawdust that they see has come off the telephone pole that's in them. And there's a lot here about how kingdom life works and what it looks like in this message that Jesus gives. But the point being is that, number one, we cannot do it as a human being on our own by human life. And number two, it must be done. It only can be done corporately in community with other believers. Yeah, I would just underscore the point that most people look at these teachings, some of the tougher ones, and not all are impossibly tough. You know, don't be showboating in your prayer life and in your fasting. I mean, these, are, these aren't as far out of reach, but when people run into the things about material possessions or yeah. enemy love or radical forgiveness, mm. they think that this is impossible. You know, mm -hmm. We can't live this way. And there are examples of why it's impossible is, well, what if all Americans live this way? Or what if all people in the world live this way? <laughs> then the world would fall apart because if everyone tried, there'd always be someone who didn't, and then they would run over everyone. Mm. But Jesus wasn't really concerned with giving ethics for the world. That's he wasn't right. a 20th or 21st century ethicist doing generic ethics for all people it everywhere. It wasn't a moral teacher. Yeah. This is really a teaching for a kingdom-fired-up community, a radical group that has taken up their cross to follow Jesus, mm -hmm. who has forsaken worldly loyalties, and who have bound themselves to one another in, in such a radical degree that uh, the mutual support they, they receive from one another and the indwelling of Christ in their midst, right, where two or more of them are gathered, he is there in their midst, is enabling them to live a life uh, that is extraordinary. And that that is noticeable and so maybe this is going to be point three and i don't want to get too far ahead but you know he begins talking about them as being a city on a hill a light like this way of life is not a path to earning salvation uh, this way of life sketched out in the sermon on the mount is central to how is god going to get the world's attention to the fact that through his son jesus 
he has changed the course of world history. What is God doing to attract the nations to his world-changing revolution? Well, it's a life lived by the kingdom community that is so out of step with the kingdoms of this world that is going to jar people's sensibilities and awaken them that there's a whole new world they don't even know about until they ran into these Christians. And so I like to frame the Sermon on the Mount as a formula for Christian witness, how God is gaining the world's attention through Jesus, which means if we don't live the more radical dimensions of this message uh, through the power of the Spirit, then how else is God going to get the world's attention? Mm -hmm. So we have point one, you as a human being cannot live the words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Only divine life can live it out. Thank God you as a Christian have the Spirit of God to live this life. Number two, you cannot do it as an individual. These words were spoken to a community of believers. That's what those disciples were, that little band of 12 men and about five, six, seven, eight women. They were the nucleus of what would be the kingdom community, the ecclesia of God. It can only be lived in community. And I would just make a point here too, and that is everything written in the New Testament, and you and I talk about this and we agree with it, was not written for you as an individual. It was written to a body of believers. Now the exceptions to that are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. But unless you're an apostolic worker, those letters really don't fully apply to you either because they were written to apostolic workers. Timothy and Titus were people who had planted kingdom communities along with Paul. So that really leaves the book of Philemon. So if you want a book written to an individual Christian <laughs> that you can apply as an individual, uh, then Philemon is yours. Everything else is written to the community of believers. Local, living expressions of the body of Christ, face-to-face -face communities where people had a shared life together. And this is why the Christian life doesn't work for most people because it was never meant to be lived as an individual was always meant to be lived in community. It doesn't really work outside that context. Or I'll put it this way, it doesn't work well outside of community. Yeah. So this is why it's so important. This is why John is so focused on ecclesiology, subject of the ecclesia, and why most of my work has been about the radical restoration of the body of Christ in expression. Yeah, so number two, it was written to a community of followers of Jesus. It wasn't written to the world. This is not 12 rules for a prosperous life. It's written to the body of Christ. And the third point, which you said, this is how the people of God together witness to what the kingdom is. This is how they embody the kingdom. The kingdom of God, the manifestation of Christ's ruling presence is displayed and demonstrated by this kind of life, which is so different from the world, radically different, drastically different. And I would say a fourth point is that if you want to get a clear image of the character, conduct, behavior of Jesus Christ, it's right here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Beyond everything else, this is a description of your Lord. This is how he lives. This is who he is. And I think it's a mistake when Christians, we've been conditioned to do this, look at these chapters and say, all right, these are rules and regulations for me to live and I'm gonna do my best to try to fulfill this. That is a fool's errand. That is a study in insanity. And it's a railroad track to guilt and condemnation and frustration. Beyond everything else, this is a description of Christ. This is the description of your Lord. And when he is living in and through us individually and through a corporate body of believers, that's what it looks like. Yeah. The Christian life can be represented by 
a painter who is painting a portrait of himself. And the first time he does it, he paints himself and he looks perfect. There are no flaws. There are no wrinkles. There are no moles. There's nothing of imperfection there. And I think that's the beginning of the Christian life. You know, we see ourselves, we're in Christ now, we look perfect, we feel great, we're on fire for the Lord, and that's how we view ourselves. After some years go by, especially when we get around other believers, which tends to expose us and show Mm -hmm. our flesh, he paints another portrait, and now that portrait is filled with wrinkles, moles, and crow's feet, and flaws, and eccentricities, because now he sees all of what is wrong with him. The third time he paints, as years go by, he paints a third portrait. But that portrait is no longer a depiction of himself. He paints a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. This illustration depicts the various stages that a Christian goes through. And John, many Christians never get to the second portrait. They never get to see the flaws that they have, which comes with exposure and which mostly comes when you rub elbows and shoulders with other believers in community in a close-knit situation. Yeah. It's a house of mirrors. You begin to see how untransformed you are. Actually, the way it works is you begin to see how untransformed everybody else is. And then it dawns on you, well, goodness me, I have a lot of problems as well, sure. maybe more than these other people. But even fewer people paint that third portrait of their Lord. And that is spiritual growth when you get to the third portrait. And brother, that is what Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 reveal to us beyond everything else. It is a depiction of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, if if I were to add any points to those, I, I would add, you know, unique to Matthew's agenda is to frame this group of teachings kind of like a new Moses. The location of the mountain, the discussion at the beginning of Deuteronomy where Moses kind of does his farewell speech to Israel uh, from the mountain and it's a repackaging of the law for the second generation. He begins by saying if if you embrace this way of life that's being set before you today, it will show your wisdom to the nations who will look at you and and see what righteous laws and decrees we have before you today. For what other God has such righteous laws and decrees, right? And uh, the point that Moses is making is, again, not that this is going to be a perfect community without flaws, but that the vision of new life that God is setting before Israel uh, is truly remarkable and noteworthy and contagious for the nations. Mm. It's, it's how God is gaining the world's attention and um, Jesus kind of rises up on the mountain and begins his set of teachings and begins by saying, uh, your good works will draw people to the Father in heaven. Mm -hmm. So the parallel to the giving of the law to the Israelites and the giving of these teachings to Israel is to say this is an all-encompassing way of life that is good news for the world. And it's not, uh, it's not like you were just saying, a set of rules yes. that we have to feel confined by. Mm. It's if you want to have an infectious impact on the world, see how Jesus lives. See the way of life he commends to his followers. It's laid before you here. If you want to have an empty old world life, 
if you want your life instead of uh, you know mirroring Christ to mirror what is good and what is bad in this world ignore these teachings mm-hmm. live the path of least resistance uh, avenge yourself on your enemies mm-hmm. hold grudges against those who hurt you in the community and outside the community and you will reap the benefit of that life mm-hmm. which is what temporary glory you might get in the present um, but the vision of new life he's given here is nothing less than a depiction of the revolution God wants to bring in world history through through a people. Yeah. And to see this not just as a formula for Christian living, but a depiction of what God's planned revolution looks like. It is a heightened sense of life that is going somewhere and doing something in world history that the world has never seen before. Yeah. I want to say one more thing about this message, and I love how you drew the parallels between Moses and the Torah and Jesus Christ, who is depicted as the new Moses in the book of Hebrews, giving the new Torah, which in fact is written on the tables of our own heart and is a description of the Spirit of God and how Jesus Christ lives his own life rather than a set of rules and regulations written in stone as the law was. But this is to my charismatic brothers and sisters, of which I are one. That's my tribe. I came out of the charismatic world, was baptized in a Pentecostal church. But there is such a strong emphasis, and has always been in this movement, about signs and wonders and miracles. And that's really the name of the game. And if you're not doing the signs and miracles and wonders, well, then you're not living the kingdom life. This is perhaps the most important message that Jesus gave on the kingdom of God in the Gospels. And yet, you do not see an emphasis on doing signs, wonders, and miracles, except at their very end. And it's not what we would want to hear if we're inclined this way. Because he says, many will come to me in that day and say, did we not do signs and wonders and miracles and cast out demons and prophesy? And then he will turn around and say, I never knew you. So those are bone-chilling words, my brothers and sisters, especially to the charismatic and Pentecostal camps, but it should put something in perspective for you, that living the life of the kingdom is not about extending the power of God in these supernatural, miraculous ways. That's not the whole ball of wax. That's a part of it. Don't get me wrong. You do find that thread throughout the New Testament, but that's not the name of the game. And I think this puts it in perspective when you look at what he actually said and how it's glaringly absent and yet what he says about it at the very end. Hmm. Yeah. I never noticed that and it's perhaps because I'm not from that tribe. Right? So <laughs> it doesn't stand out to me as much. Well, but. people who are part of that tribe never noticed it either, yeah. uh, I have found. So that's why we want to put a spotlight on it. Well, I hope uh, that answers the question thoroughly. We're not going to do a verse by verse, blow by blow on what he said in these chapters, but I think at least these four or five points will give you a grid through which to really look at what he said in the light of the context in which it's put. Yeah, you've just talked about how this passage might apply in a specific way to uh, your Pentecostal friends. I'm from the Christian Church, Church of Christ, which is a restoration movement that wants to kind of get back to the early church and restore the early vision of God's earliest followers. And and we have a habit of trying to restore 
you know, the practices of the church as you see them in Acts. That's, that's what we want to go back to restore. And I would challenge my brothers and sisters to say, to go back to restore what captured their heart is to restore Jesus's teachings here in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. This way of life that he set forward, you want to get back to what the early church was about, getting back to the heart of Jesus and the life that he held for them and the life they embraced. We have to restore the place of the teachings of Matthew 5 through 7 in the Christian life. Matthew, I believe, frames this as Jesus's greatest hits right here compiled in one place Mm. and uh, front and foremost in his gospel uh, representing the kinds of teachings that a kingdom-driven community rallies around. Uh, You don't restore the church if you're not restoring an effort to live this life of salt and light. Two things are amazing to me right now as I hear you share that. One, the Pentecostal charismatic movement is all about restoring (laughs) <laughs> what we see in the book of Acts. Yeah. But they filter it through the lens of the power and the miracles, That's and right. the signs and the wonders. Where the Church of Christ, your background... The Stone Campbell movement. The Stone Campbell movement looks at the same body of the New Testament, the book of Acts, That's wanting right. to restore it, but your right. focus is on church structure and church polity. Yeah. But it's still the same impulse to restore something that's been lost. And this brings me to the second thing. About 30 years ago, I came out of the Pentecostal charismatic movement and began meeting in what I would call an organic way with other believers who had come out of that same tradition. And we had friends who were part of the Church of Christ who came out of that denomination. Well, I know you all don't think her denomination. But <laughs> that non-denomination? <laughs> that non-denomination <laughs> denomination. <laughs> you call it a tradition. That heritage. No, I want to stay with not. That non-denomination denomination came out of that tribe and began meeting in an organic way. I'll and forgive we, you. <laughs> and we found one another, and we started meeting together And it was fascinating because here we were schooled and immersed in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And here they were immersed in church polity, church structure, but without the gifts of the Holy Spirit and with an understanding that those things had ceased. The miraculous manifestations. yeah. Yeah, the miraculous manifestations had ceased. And we came together and believe it or not, for a time we started meeting together. And at one point, it was blood up to the horse's bit. But we came to a discovery that we had to drop everything we learned from our previous traditions, lay them at the feet of the cross, and have Jesus Christ teach us all over again as children. Except you be like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom. And what came out of that, brother, was remarkable. And I tell the story in a book entitled Revise Us Again if you want to read about it. But it's just interesting to me that here here we are 30 years later and now I'm coming across in fellowship again a brother from that same tradition. Here we are, a charismatic Pentecostal and a, a Stone Campbellite, <laughs> a la Church of Christ, etc., having a conversation about the kingdom of God. And it's the Sermon on the Mount that we find we have in common. <laughs> yes, sir, and a lot more yeah. than that. What 30 years can do to a person, I tell yeah. you. 
Praise the Lord. Well, I think on that note, we'll end this podcast episode, and we will see you next time at the Insurgents Podcast. And by the way, I just want to say this. If you are listening to these episodes and you're getting any value out of them, what would really help other people find it is if you went to iTunes and you gave the podcast a five-star review. iTunes has a ranking system, and the more five-star reviews a podcast receives, the higher they put it up in their rankings, which enables more people to see it. So that's just something you can do. You're not obligated, of course, but if you've received value from this, we'd appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the insurgence has begun. Don't miss it.